Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2016 film, Passengers. So, this film takes place... I don't think they specify the exact year, but yeah. supposedly hundreds of years into the future, where technology has evolved to the point where we can go on these long space journeys yep. and we're going to be found this new planet that's it's right. a hospitable planet yes there's so it's a long journey it's a 120 year journey yes and so to be able to pull this off machines are going to be mostly running on autopilot for practically all the duration of this journey and all the passengers and crew members are in um, hibernation in these little pods yep and the plan is four months before they arrive at the planet, they're all going to be woken up and they can stay on this planet and get ready. For, I mean, stay on the ship and get ready for everything for their journey. And then in four months, they'll land on this home, this new planet. So, But we see early on, it's about 30 years into this 120-year journey. They're going through this asteroid field. And they have these shields or something that protects them. But this particular barrage is pretty intense. And it sets off some problems with the machines, and one of the problems it starts is one of this, one of the pods awakens prematurely, and the person in this pod is a man named Jim Preston. He's an engineer, and he starts to realize pretty early on that where I am the only one awakened, and he then finds out that there's still 90 years to go. He awoke too late, and he originally tries because he's an engineer, tries to find some way to get back into the pod and get back in hibernation but it's not working the all the machines and are not helping him and they just they all keep saying oh this nobody's ever awoken prematurely these are foolproof they're perfectly fine you know they don't they don't yeah. tell him so eventually it gets to the point where he just sort of accepts his fate and it goes on for about a year and we see him going through depression. There's even a part because you can you can get up, put on a suit and go you know out into space with a tether cord there's even a Part where he just he almost attempts suicide by just opening up the airlock without putting the suit on, so he'll just die instantly almost. But he decides against it. But while wandering around all of these pods, because all the people are still in their pods, he sees this one woman named Aurora, and she is the daughter of a famous writer. And he sort of becomes uh, fixated on her. He starts yeah. reading all her, you know, the there's these logs of her videos, and he starts reading it and becomes infatuated with her. And he starts toying with the idea. Of awakening her so he can they can be together, and he he can see goes back and forth on whether he wants to do it. He's torn. He, he knows the consequences of doing that, but eventually he does that without telling her. She awakens and he lies, saying that I don't know. You must have just you happened the same thing with you. So eventually that happens, and for a few months everything's perfect. They start to connect. They fall in love, but because he one of the only robot companion he has is this bartender and he told him to like i says i'm gonna do this but you know when she wakes up keep this a secret he lets a little thing slip saying there are no secrets between us and so that lets the bartender think that oh i can tell her now yeah and so he tells her and so she is visibly frustrated at you know obviously frustrated she avoids contact with him she hates him now and but then, right as they're about to be separated, another person wakes up. The captain, played by Lawrence Fishburne, not, I, the, ca- not the captain, sorry, but one of the main a, crew members. He's a, he's a chief of some yeah. sort. Yes. yes, a deck chief is yeah. what he calls himself. And his pod 
did what Jim's did, woke up. And eventually he starts realizing that there's been problems. With, slowly there's problems with all the robots and machines going on. And, there, and then he's also sick because... I forget what was the what the, was his issue. The, the pod uh, there's a there's a waking sequence. Jim's waking sequence was basically normal. So there was a slight uh, to use a term that this character Mancuso used. Uh, there was a slight hangover in Jim's case, but it happened too rapidly in in Mancuso's case. So he's got some serious uh, biological issues that will end up being terminal, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so eventually, yes, he does succumb to his illness, and the problem really hasn't quite been fixed yet. But eventually, now, I've kind of tuned out, I'll be honest, I kind of tuned out at this part. This was the least interesting part of the movie for me. But eventually, the, the, the it's going to go bad. The whole ship is in danger, practically, because the machines are all faulting. Everything's falling apart. Yeah. So now... Jim and Aurora have to, you know, for a moment put their feelings aside and try to save the ship. And overall, eventually, they do. They sort of uh, reconnect. Yeah, but he finds a way because there's this override thing that the um, Mancuso had. Mm-hmm. Basically, one of the pods, he can put her back into hibernation. and She can go back to sleep for the duration of whatever the journey's left. But she's fallen back in love with him. And she decides to stay with him and not go back in that pod because there's only one pod. So one person would have to stay. So she decides, I'd rather stay with you than go back. And eventually we wake up, you know, uh, somewhat 90 years later. All the rest of the crew is waking up, but there's all this vegetation and plant life all throughout because they were they found a way to make plants and stuff on the ship. Yeah. And yeah. that's pretty much the end of the movie. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I think this film could be good. Yeah, but it was not good. It had it had the potential of being good, uh, and I think up until the point where uh, the android Arthur inadvertently reveals, right, uh, the fact that Jim had uh, purposefully awakened Aurora, and we see her completely justifiable reaction to this anger she she tells him that he's essentially actually she tells Mancuso it's essentially murder um it is a flagrant uh choice on Jim's part to use her to alleviate his own loneliness and 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 they I guess they don't quite show enough of his angst about that choice i mean they do to some extent but i think there could have been a lot more there and the transition from her anger and revulsion at what he did to her to falling in love with him again yeah i mean after having fallen in love with him once with him holding this secret the entire time i just don't think it's plausible that uh, a normal human being uh, would forget all that and be able to fall in love with the guy again. Now, it may be the case that she would be able to forgive him toward the end, but I just, mm-hmm. I'm just not buying the yeah. fall in love, falling in love and at especially. the end. It, and, you know, and there, there might have been a, a certain, a certain amount of, as it were, hard won respect uh, from her to him for having risked his life to save the ship and her and also telling her look you know here's this one pod you can get in there 
I can imagine that she would choose not to, but not fall in love with the guy and say, look, you know what we're, we are in the, a, a role, a stewardship role with this ship now, whether we like it or not. So we're going to work together, but it's going to be kind of a professional relationship. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you, you, you bought back some respect for what you did to save the ship. I mean, that's as far as I could see if I was putting myself in Aurora's position, yeah. as far as I as far as I could go. Yeah, and that's the big problem because the ending for this film, I'm just going to say, is terrible. I, because I, 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 the whole subplot with the whole malfunctions thing, I feel that in a way it's justifying what Jim did, saying, "Well, because the cat, you know, the captain is going, well, Mancuso was going through what he did, and he can't survive, so they needed two people." So yeah. in a way, they you know she needed it to be woken up because he couldn't quite do this thing by himself. So yeah. it's almost justifying his actions. Well, it's given a consequentialist if it is trying to give a justification. I don't know. I mean, again, the, the movie's a little bit superficial in this regard. But um, if you're going to give a justification for it, it would be a consequential justification. Uh, you know, saying, well, you know, we need we need to cut the guy some slack, maybe maybe uh, excuse his immoral behavior because it, it turned out all right. I mean, yeah. they ended up saving these 5,000 people and essentially in the longer run, saving the populace of this second Earth, Homestead 2, which, of course, completely sidesteps and ignores the fact that uh, uh, what motivated his actions had absolutely nothing to do with that. It was essentially... His, his desire to alleviate his own loneliness and that's not even addressed and you're right it's almost like the film gives an excuse for it not to be addressed and i i think they could have worked nevertheless worked a discussion of of that contrast between the consequentialist aspects of the story and and uh, his intentions they could have worked a lot more on that with the dialogue between the three characters. I think they kill Mancuso off too quick. And you can see that Mancuso's, he's he's formed some judgments about Jim. Yeah, I do like that you one know. line he has. He says, how long were you in isolation? He goes, a year. It's like, oh, yeah, but still, yeah. damn. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's literally implying that, you know, I can kind of understand you were lonely, but it was only a year, and look what you did to alleviate it. You doomed her to living, to dying on this ship. Uh, obviously without her consent deeply immoral but they don't talk about it they they yeah, should have I, that kind of a I, one of the criticisms i've heard about this movie and even jennifer lawrence uh, in later interviews sort of admitted like yeah this probably would have made the film better is that it should have been it should have started the film should have started when she woke up from aurora and it was mainly her point of view and not jim's and the, basically the way you reveal maybe how the things he says, the things he reveals, even when he tells her, like, you know, the same thing, I've been here for a year, you must have gone through the same thing that happened to me. But the way he thinks, you sort of puts two and two together, feeling like what he did. Yeah. And the ending of the film should have been, I found a way to get you back into that pod. And she doesn't fall back in love with him, but she, in a way, forgives him, but goes back into that pod. He's somehow found some way to correct that mistake yeah. by giving her back that life. Yeah, that that, that would have been. And she doesn't a... love him anymore, but there's, you know, like there's a respect or maybe just, just like overall complicated yes. feelings. And when she wakes up 90 years and she's allowed to go there, she remembers him and, you know, has some feeling of respect and just like complex feelings, not yeah. just, oh, I'm in love with you. Again. Yeah. 
And another possible ending I thought would have been more powerful too is in the later stages of the story when he is essentially choosing to sacrifice himself to to vent the nuclear reactor that's running this darn ship. You know, he's he's out there. He's that it's venting. It looks like he's not going to survive. Right. And, and by the way, the whole scenario where she goes out and rescues him after he's flying on completely unbelievable. But yeah, like I, um, I was on cruise control. I, through that, yeah, that I want to. I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that one either. But I think it would have been much more powerful if he did die sacrificing himself. Right. So now she's left alone on the ship, and maybe they follow her for a while, and she goes through a year, two, three, and she's writing about it, and the loneliness and isolation starts to get to her, to where she's seriously considering waking somebody else up, and then they leave it at that. That's That, that would have been a that, I think that would have been a much better, because... The potential was there, I think, to portray the awful effects of complete isolation with Jim. They didn't do it, and they it, could have done it with montage. her. It's a very quick montage, but uh, you know, I, I think of accounts of, um, uh, as you know, we're working on a uh, project, uh, a documentary about the. Uh, POWs that were in the Hanoi prison system during the Vietnam War. More than one of them says, you know, if if you asked me which was the worst experience that we had uh, when we were there and gave me a choice between the torture or the enforced isolation, you have to remember some of these guys were isolated from each, from contact with anybody else other than the prison guards and the torturers uh, for years. And they, and they purposefully located them in cells to where they could not use uh, a tap code, this knocking code that they would use to communicate with each. These guys, more than one of them said, that was the worst part of the experience, being utterly and completely alone. They could have explored that um, much more than they did uh, in the buildup to him deciding to awaken Aurora. They do a little bit, and they show him kind of, you know, losing control of himself and, and, and maybe bordering on something like insanity. But it's very, he's got a very Russian beard, and he's growing the beard. Uh, which, yeah, I'm screaming at him the whole time. Cut your hair, cut the damn beard, guy. To come on, you know. But <laughs> you know, they don't. They, it's very surface, uh, and it's a. Mm-hmm. It's it was disappointing to me because I really wanted to see that either in his case. Or in her case, you know, after she had gone through the righteous indignation, it would have been very interesting to see her, uh, uh, after he dies as the hero, start to feel what it was like for him. So they could have had him alone for three, four, five, six years, and then her in the same boat at the end, and then have her decide, looking at a pod, you know, and deciding, should I do this? And then leave it right there. And what's interesting, because we saw, talk about the missed potential, this screenplay, the script, was on the you know the blacklist for many years. And for those who don't know, that's there's always a list, I think, every year. of called, It's called the blacklist. And it's like these great scripts going through Hollywood that haven't been gone through production phase yet, made into a movie. And this one had been on that list for a number of years. 
and everybody said like this is such a great script this can make such a great movie but at the end this is the result so i'm wondering if something had to have been lost in translation I, I imagine, and just total guess on my part, I imagine they probably had some some level of discussion and debate over how exactly it should end. And I bet you some of these endings we've talked about were bandied about by the scriptwriters as possibilities. Uh, but in the end, it sounded it sounds like they wanted to, and this is kind of a funny way to put it, I think, but I, it, it seems like they decided they wanted to make something like a romantic comedy out of this thing. I it's mean, very much a romance because you have yeah. that, you know, montage. They're going on dates, yeah, falling in love. They're going to the movies. They're throwing popcorn at each other, and it's yeah. yeah. And it, it's just it doesn't strike it. It strikes you as plausible as long as she doesn't know what's going yes. on. But then as soon as she finds out what's going on, you think, well, that's it. And she is angry, and, and uh, she does a very good job in those scenes conveying that anger and that that sense of uh, uh, violation or betrayal or just utter disregard for her, right? Uh, but then she turns around so quickly, and mm-hmm. even if it's from heroics, I just don't buy it. Um, it should have been a scene, like I said, with the pod, and he even he even suggests like you know them getting back together, and she says, you know, there's no going back from what you did. Yeah, I forgive you, but if you were not, we were not ever going to get back to that level that we once were yeah. because there was such a violation. Yeah, and like I said, then she goes in the pod and she forgives him, but you know she's never going to feel for him what she felt during that earlier on. Yeah, and you know it would have been interesting too if they had maybe. Uh, constricted the time a little bit to where at the end of the journey it would have been possible for him to be around as a very old man uh, when she awakens. Yeah, like a shorter, not 120 years. Yeah, maybe like and, and then they year. have a some sort of a, a interaction at the end. And maybe at that point she would be able to forgive him and almost pity him because, you know, at least on the surface... He's this very old man. She knows what he's been through since he put her back in the, or she decided to go mm-hmm. back in the pod. Um, that would have been interesting too. Shades of um, Interstellar, right? Yeah. Um, but they didn't choose to do that no. either. And I think some other the criticisms have of this movie is people say Jim's actions are, especially in the beginning when he starts looking over her files and looking at her every day. That he's almost like a stalker or yeah. a predator. Yeah. And even people, some people say her reversal at the end is almost a bit of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, I, I would, I would say yes, except for the utter implausibility of it. Stockholm syndrome typically happens with uh, hostages when they have been again effectively isolated from all social contact. And the only social contact they have is with their uh, captors. Something like Patty Hearst. Right. And it's almost human nature. It's almost hard to avoid it. It's not impossible, but it's hard to avoid uh, because of that desperation for human connection to even connect with your your enemy, as it were. Um, But you have to have, as a prerequisite of that, that, that severe isolation and uh, a long period of it. And you don't get really any of that for Aurora. Um, and uh, he's certainly not holding her hostage, but uh, certainly 
kind of using and abusing her, I would say. Yeah, and um, that using and abusing, some people will go as far in saying that he sexually assaulted her in a way because they do have sex in their relationship. Yep. And, you know, because he woke her up, he was, I mean, that had almost had to have been an end goal for him because he was, he was falling in love with her. So he was like, I'm going to make her fall yeah. in love. And then we take that to that next level. So yeah. I have to say, yeah, in a way he did commit sexual assault. Oh, and assault. it's a thoroughgoing deception. And he, yeah. he, he, he goes along with that deception for the longest period. Doesn't look like he's ever intending to tell her until good old AI Arthur slips up. Once again, another case of looks, AI. He looks so much like Lloyd the bartender from The Shining. <laughs> he does look like Lloyd, as a matter of fact. Um, um, so, again, another reason why, if you, if you put yourself in Aurora's shoes and you realize this guy had no one in, intention of telling me what he did, we had this relationship, we had sex, we went on dates. Uh, wow, what a despicable human being. I don't see how you can not have that that reaction, and that, that really detracted from the end of the film. It was just, it was not simply romantic, but implausibly romantic, and yeah, and, and, and get back what you're saying about I, I, him stalking. Um, I can understand a little bit what he seemed to have done at that point. Because he had exhausted all the, as it were, uh, individually focused things he could do that the ship provides, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a certain element of tedium, boredom, uh, uh, angst that you might you might go insane because you literally have nothing to do. Impression I got with Jim at the beginning brought up something kind of interesting. I, I don't know if he was exclusively, as you put it. <laughs> stalking Aurora. Um, I got the impression that, it, although it's not very clearly um, conveyed in the film, but I got the impression that he actually started familiarizing himself with uh, a good number of the 5,000 passengers on the ship. And that gets to an interesting, interesting question, why exactly he would do that. And I, I, I think the answer is that he had exhausted all the possibilities that the the corporation, what was it called, Homestead yeah. the Corporation, uh, provided to kind of keep him entertained. And he he goes through uh, a quite natural progression of uh, going from simple boredom with the tedium and trying to keep himself entertained there to something more deep and um, depressing and... Uh, concerning um and again this gets back to that isolation theme so i can kind of understand how if you were in his position maybe not after a year maybe after a little longer time but you'd, you'd be kind of desperate for company right mm -hmm. so he at first says well I, I can certainly read these other people's bios and he gets more interested in her because he's read her bio and it is kind of creepy you, you think he's kind of a a voyeur in a way um but it's a little understandable that he would do that. And again, there's there's a opportunity there for them to explore his conflicted feelings about taking it further and actually waking her up. They do a little bit of that. You know, he sits next to her and he kind of has a conversation as he's drinking his coffee with her. And you think, oh, that, that's kind of amusing. It's kind of understand, again, understandable why he would do that. Uh, 
and then it transitions into his conflict with himself. But it's all done very quickly. Yes, montage again. Yeah, and uh, again, there was an opportunity there, I think, to explore that, that horrible corrosive effects of isolation. Uh, if not with Jim, certainly with her at the end, uh, again, with our my yeah. uh, alternate ending. Because you could you think that is the thing. Like some people are saying, well, I would never do this. Yeah. yeah. But I'm saying if you were like a year or two more in isolation, it's not just you're all by yourself. There's all these people around you, yeah. th- thousands of people around you, and you're looking at it and you're thinking, I'm going to die here on this ship alone. They're going to wake up after I'm dead and live this wonderful life on this new planet. I can, you know, in some way understand how that would get to you. And then you're, you would start to consider doing things that you're, if you're in your normal state, you wouldn't dare consider. Yeah. And, and most people, if they were honest, would say they'd be at least tempted to do what Jim did. Um, but it all, it all develops far too quickly. And I, and I think, again, it would have been more interesting to uh, give him more than a year. Uh, a decade. In, in, in the isolation. Years. Five years, I think, would have been good. Um, because you, you, might have, you might, at that point, have Mancuso open or, or awaken and then learn of the five years. And then maybe he'd say, oh, not just what he... Damn. Yeah. Damn. The, the implied... Wow, you you really didn't go through enough to justify this. Um, five years, he he might have had a slightly different response to that. I think. So, uh, getting close to the end of my questions here, is there anything else we should talk about before we start wrapping up? Well, I I think it's interesting just in in general to uh, consider the um, ethical dimensions of interstellar. Uh, travel and colonization. I, th- I think that's very interesting. The, the, the premise was kind of promising in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're traveling at about half the speed of light, and they're going to some neighboring star where uh, uh, an Earth-like planet fortunately resides. And they're, they're, they've they're taken along an, enough seeds, plant life, I guess, uh, uh, embryonic uh, animals to be able to populate this world and so forth. Eventually, I would hope we were able to do something like that. But it raises a lot of very interesting questions about what you do with the people who are going to be making that trip. You know, and in this, in this movie, they have uh, this... The hypothetical technology of suspended animation, which is essentially stops you from aging as long as you're in those pods. Well, that's one potential way to deal with it, right? And then you have all the ethical questions revolving around ensuring their safety through the entire trip, especially when there are no human beings overseeing it. They slightly touch on that in the film. Um, but a, a, another interesting question for, with that for that same kind of a scenario is, you know, what if that type of suspended animation technology is not really feasible at all? Well, then you're going to have living beings on these ships uh, traveling for hundreds of years. Um, What do you do to prepare the first generation? Because there will be more than one generation for the rigors of space travel in that regard. Um, You know, that's already uh, something that uh, NASA and, um, 
the Soviets when they had a space program, and, and now Elon Musk and others concern themselves with people that are going up to the International Space Station. You've got to be able to prepare them psychologically and emotionally for that experience. Because it's a confined experience, even though that ship is very big, you're always inside, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it, it seems like the this story would have been a hopeful uh, a piece of uh, maybe training material for people uh, who may inadvertently end up in the position of somebody like Jim or somebody like Aurora or somebody like Mancuso. Um, but unfortunately, they kept it at a superficial level, I think. And it doesn't, because of that, it doesn't uh, avail itself very well to that kind of training, unfortunately. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long. Be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Music